privilege to be with you. I say this every time I have the honor to be here. Um, I could never repay TMU and TMS for all that, all that the Lord poured into my heart uh, through those years, and it's just a joy to be able to invest a little bit back uh, for all that God has done uh, through this institution in my soul and in my life and ministry. Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 26 and 28 to begin with, but we are going to go through the whole Bible. We're going to skip along the storyline, but we begin here in Genesis 1, verse 26. Let me read verses 26 to 28 of chapter 1, and then we'll pray. Hear then the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Father, we pray now with our, with our Bibles open before us, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church, to the churches. We pray that as we read your word, we would understand what the text is saying and that it would shape and reshape our thoughts, our words, our feelings, and our actions, our ambitions, and the way we engage with one another from different ethnic people groups, and even with our own ethnic people group in the church, in the neighborhood, in the community, and among the nations. Father, we pray that seeds would be planted to shift our thinking, reframe our thoughts according to scripture, and give my brothers and sisters here discernment to examine even what I say to make sure that we are being as biblical and as humble and as obedient to everything Christ commanded us and teaches as possible. Lord, we can't do this apart from your help, but you said in Romans 16 that you are able to strengthen us according to your command to advance the obedience of faith among all the nations. So advance our obedience here. Enable us to be more obedient and to advance it through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In order to follow Jesus as a disciple of Christ and love others well, we need to think biblically about ethnicity and ethnic harmony. If we're going to take every thought captive to Christ and disciple others to obey everything Christ commanded us, then we have to address this issue. And I'm very grateful that our TMU community is doing that this week. It's very important for the church and for Christians to be aware and to be speaking and to be thinking and acting on these things. Some might say that this is leaning towards a social gospel and a social agenda. Aren't you guys losing your gospel focus if you talk about this issue? I mean, what is the Great Commission? Go therefore and what? Make what? Make disciples of all nations and teach them to obey everything Christ commanded. So go therefore and give the gospel to people to convert them to Christ, that they would repent from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. So why go into these other social issues? Well, I don't think 
we are leaving the gospel necessarily here. You can leave the gospel, and it does happen, so it's a, it's a valid warning, but I don't think we're losing the gospel or losing our focus on Christ or leaving the Bible. At least I hope not, and if I do, you need to discern that from the word yourself. So in our church, our statement of faith of our church family, and actually the whole Southern Baptist Convention, says this. One of the articles of faith that says, all Christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in our own lives and in human society. Means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. So permanent change only happens through salvation, right? And yet, in the spirit of Christ, I continue, Christians should oppose racism, every form of greed, selfishness, and vice, and all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. We should work to provide for the orphaned, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, and the sick. We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of, human, of all human life, from conception to natural death. Every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. In order to promote these ends, Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause, always being careful to act in the spirit of love without compromising their loyalty to Christ and his truth. I think that's a really well-stated um, statement or article of faith that, the, that Christians should embrace. It's a biblical statement. It's a true statement. It's a good statement. This is something that Christians um, need to think about in America. Some Christians in America might want to push this into the social area and not into the Christian discipleship area. But if, if we shouldn't talk about ethnic harmony from the pulpit, should we talk about abortion? Isn't that in our society? Isn't there structural issues there with abortion? Don't we want an overturning of Roe v. Wade? What about marriage? Is it good for our society to live in the vision of one man and one woman? for a covenant life, for a lifetime? Isn't that a good thing for our society, whether they're Christian or not? It's a societal issue, right? It's a good thing. And as Christians, we want to speak up on the definition of marriage, and we want to speak up on the, the rights of the unborn, because they're so, it affects our society. If we're going to love our neighbors as ourselves, we need to love our unborn neighbors, and we, leave, we need to love our neighbors who might be entering a so-called marriage that's actually going to hurt their lives and hurt our society as a whole. It's not just what's going on in the church, it affects our neighbors. If we're gonna love our neighbors well, then we need to do that, not just societally with abortion, not just with marriage issues, but even with race, so-called race and racism. So if you're going to disciple people to obey everything Christ commanded, we need to not just teach them to think biblical thoughts and read the Bible, we need to teach them how to obey it in loving their neighbors, in their community, and among the nations. So it's very important that we think about this. I want to give you 15 biblical theological statements to, to give a framework for understanding ethnicity and race. I'm not going for a home run here to revolutionize your thinking. I'm going for a, a, a base hit. I'm going for a first base hit right now. I just want to get some seeds of thought in your mind that you could think about and mull over and, and wrestle with the implications of going forward. We do have a Q&A on Friday, and I think we have another private one or a, an offline one later, too. So that would be great to, to think through those things together. And you guys are having conversations I trust in light of what Matt said on, on Monday. So we're going to trace the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and I'm going to make 15 uh, biblical theological statements along the way. Now, some people break the story of the Bible up to four parts, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. 
We're going to go a little bit more specific than that. We'll go creation, fall, Abraham, Israel, exile, and then from the exile to Jesus, to the church, to the consummation. Okay, I don't know how many, of the, how many parts those are, but let me just say those again. Creation, fall, Abraham, Israel, exile, Jesus, church, consummation. Okay, so there's a story of the Bible. Those are some points along the way, and I want to make some biblical theological statements, 15 of them, along that pathway. So let's get started with creation. We're already here in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, so here's statement number one. And some of these are going to be very obvious to you. God made every, here's statement number one, God made every human in his image. God made every human in his image. Genesis 1, 26 says, God, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. To bear God's image is to reflect God. When you see another human being of any ethnicity, you are seeing a picture, an image of God. You're seeing a reflection of God. Bearing God's image gives each person dignity and worth. And so the way you treat them, in a sense, is the way you're treating God. So the way you treat, that's why murder in Genesis 9, why murder is such a big deal is because when you kill someone, you shed their blood, you're shedding the blood of someone made in the image of God. Okay? So that's number one. God made every image, in, every human in his image. Point number two, still on this creation part. All humans are descended from Adam. And we know that Matt talked about that, about Adam on Monday. All humans are descended from Adam. So if you look at Genesis 5.1, just turn in your Bible, a few pages here. In Genesis 5.1, it says, this is the document containing the family records of Adam. On that day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. And then it goes on to Adam's sons. So everyone descended from Adam. Romans 5 makes that point as well, that we're all under the federal headship of Adam. So if we're all from Adam, and we're not only all from Adam, by the way, who else are we all descended from? Who's, our, who's another great, 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 great grandfather that we all share? Adam and Noah, right? Noah. So guess what, guys? We're all family. We're all cousins. Not just Christians, like in Christ, but we're a family as humanity. We are all descended. We all have the same great, great, great grandfather, Adam, and, and Noah as well. So all humans, all seven billion of them, have descended from Adam and Noah. Okay, that's, that's point number two. So all humans are made in God's image. Secondly, all humans have descended from Adam. Number three, from verse 28 now of Genesis 1, going back to Genesis 1, look at verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and what? Subdue it. Rule. Rule over everything. Okay, so point number three, God created humans to build societies all over the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it and rule over it. So all humans have what some have called, it's even called this in Bible doctrine, MacArthur's new systematic theology, the cultural mandate. What is the cultural mandate? It's those bearing God, it's, the, it's those who are made in God's image being obligated to create culture. To be fruitful, specifically to be fruitful, multiply to fill the earth and subdue it. This means get married, make babies, travel the world, and build up societies. 
build cities and societies. That's the command. God made every human in his image, Adam and Eve, and he said, get married, make babies, multiply, fill the earth, so go travel around the world, and then rule over it, set up societies all over the world. These three things are true before the fall, and they're still true today. We're all still descended from Adam. We're all still made in God's image, even with sin, and we all are obligated to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Now, that doesn't mean everyone has to get married. You're not sinning if you don't get married. There are other ways to do that, namely Matthew 28, 19, and 20, which we'll get to in a second. All right, that's number three. Statement number four now. Statement, statement number four. Um, humans are born into sin after Adam eats the fruit. Humans are born into sin after Adam eats the fruit. Turn to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, or you can just listen to me as I read it. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 makes the point that we're all born in sin. It says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of the, our flesh and thoughts. And we were, listen to this, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. All humans born after Adam ate the fruit are born sinners. We are by nature children of wrath. We are sinners by nature, not just by choice. Babies are cute and cuddly. They are, but they're sinners, right? They're born sinners. And you don't teach kids to sin. You don't teach them how to lie. You don't teach them to get angry and be self-centered. You don't teach them to say mine when they have a toy and they don't really care about the toy until another baby wants the toy. Then they care about it, right? You don't teach them to be selfish in that way. They'll get that on their own. It's in their nature. Sin deceives us. We're born in sin and sin hardens our hearts. What sin does is it makes us self-centered so we're distracted from the needs of others. It makes us compare ourselves with other, other people in such a way that we distinguish ourselves and exalt ourselves. That's why whenever you compare yourself to other people, you compare your strengths, I do this, I compare my strengths with their weaknesses to make myself feel better about myself. Oh, look at their church, well, or look at his preaching, at least for me, or whatever your, whatever your, you, you, you know, your ambitions in life, you, you tend to focus on your strengths and the other people's weaknesses just to feel better about yourself. To exalt yourself, because we're born sinners, we're born selfish, we're born self-centered. We are born to exalt ourselves, or we bo we're not born to do that, but we're born and we do that in our sin. We all do it. Okay, so that's number four, we're born sinners, all of us, all humans. Still in creation, or we're now in the fall. And now let's go to Genesis 11. This is probably the, the place we're going to stay the longest. Other ones, we're just going to do more quoting verses and making points. But Genesis 11 is where we're going to spend most of our, or the largest chunk of time. We'll pull two or three points from here, from Genesis 11, so turn there. You guys know this story very famously. It's the Tower of Babel, or as it says in my Christian Standard Bible, the Tower of Babylon. All right, look at Genesis 11, verse 4. It says this. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower, and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be what? Otherwise we will be what? scattered throughout the earth so they don't want to be scattered they don't want to be scattered what did god say be fruitful multiply and what fill the what fill the earth well what do you have to do to fill the earth you got to scatter you got to travel right you can't stay there 
can't stay in the place. But they didn't want to travel and fill the earth. They wanted to stay in the same place, okay? And they wanted to build, it says in verse 4, a na- they wanted to make a name for themselves. So look at verse 5. So they don't want to glorify God and spread God's glory around the earth. They want to exalt their own name by staying in the same place. So look at verse 5. What does God do? Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that humans were building. The Lord said, they begun to do this as one people having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse their language so they will not understand one another's speech. So then the Lord scattered them, it says in verse 8. So here's, here's number five, statement number five, ready? All people groups were originally broken up. How are they broken up here? By what? By language, not skin color. They were broken up by language because of corporate rebellion. So it wasn't the skin color. It wasn't the shape of their eyes or their lips or their nose or the texture of their hair. That's not how human groups were broken up originally. People groups were broken up by language because of their corporate rebellion where they want to make a name for who? themselves and not scatter making a name for God by spreading God's glory across the globe. So we have people we have people groups here broken up and scattered not by skin color, not by hair texture, not by eye shape, but I reiterate by language. He changed their languages so that they wouldn't understand each other. And so if you imagine a huge crowd of people, you just start speaking up and you don't understand some people, but then some people's language catches your ear and you understand some people and you start grouping together, right? And so, so they start finding each other via language, and they divide the people groups not by physical appearance, but by language. That's number five. Let's go to number six. Here's number six. Ethnocentrism, that's what I'm going to call racism, okay? Now, here's that seed that I'm not going to really get too deep into because we're going to get to philosophy and sociology and all that stuff, so I don't want to go all, the, all that far. But I'm going to call it ethnocentrism, what some people call racism, ethno so your ethnic people group, ethnocentrism, was born at Babel. It was born right here. This is where some people, what some people call racism is, is born right here, ethnocentrism. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, So from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore it is called Babylon, for there the Lord confused their lang- the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. So, here, I hope you see, well, I want to show you that racism was born or ethnocentrism was born right here. Why? Well, before we even talk about ethnocentrism, I just need to say a word about race. Okay, what does it mean to be a part of a race? Notice it's the theology of ethnicity, not a theology of race that I'm giving you. Um, Thabidiano Vuiles preached here in 2012, Truth and Life Conference. It's still on the website, Ethnicity and the Mission of God. You should look that message up. Truth in Life, 2012, message number five. Just checked last night or this morning. It's still there on the website. So um, ethnicity and the mission of God. Listen to that. I'm just going to give a brief um, part from here because that has borne lots of fruit in my life in this discussion. Okay, so what does it mean to be, what, what does race mean? According to the dictionary, now just the Webster dictionary, three definitions. Listen to these three definitions because they don't match. They actually collide. Definition number one, any one of the groups that human beings can be divided to based on shared distinctive physical traits, so skin color and the rest. Definition number two, a group of individuals who share a common culture or history, like the English race. And definition number three, a major group of living things like the human race. Okay, those are not all the same thing, right? The human race, and then saying the English race, 
Those things collide. Because if you're saying the English race, then that's a, a subset of humanity, right? But race is also used as all of humanity. So if you're going to make it a subset of humanity and all of humanity at the same time, when you slide back and forth between these definitions, that's when you start to put one quote-unquote race above another. And it's a, it's a slippery slide that keeps happening in conversations, causing confusion, and that's why we have a lot of, it's not the main reason, but it's one of the reasons why there's confusion here. It creates confusion rather than cultivating clarity. If you use race, the Bible doesn't talk about race that way, not that we can't use extra biblical words in systematic theology, but if you use race, you're already, you're always, you're already joining the slide where it goes back and forth between all of human race and the black race or the white race. And when you do that, you divide people on the wrong lines. What was the division in Genesis 11? On languages, right? But you're going to start to divide them on color, on, F on, on, on skin color and physical traits. So race is, at least on those first two definitions, not the human race, it's a theory that there are different human people groups whose identity is rooted in biological differences. And that's where we can get a little confusing. We can say black race, white race, which leads to the supremacy of one perhaps over the other. And it, it, it focuses on differences. But if we're one human race, here's what the BD said in, in that message. It's really helpful for me in my application. So whenever I look at any of you, I've been trying to apply this in my life. When I look at strangers, visitors at my church, I think, instead of thinking, what, how, how do they look different than me? I want to think of what's in common first. So I, instead of that, I think, we're both made in God's image. Not only are we both made in God's image, we're both descended from Adam and Noah. Not only are we both descended from Adam and Noah, we're both sinners who need God's grace. Not only are we both sinners who need God's grace, we have a God who loved the world that he gave his only son so that we can have that grace. So if I just think of people in those four areas as I, as I approach people, I start to feel more in touch with them than separate from them. When you use race along the color lines and biological distinctives as the definitive marker of who you are or who people are, are then you emphasize the division first and it's harder to reach over in towards towards harmony and so i encourage you to um to, to to use the word ethnicity instead because it's not just based on physical traits it's actually based on culture ancestry geography um language and more when we use race we're shooting ourselves in the foot as we try to move forward in a discussion often often why because words frame thoughts. Words not, words not only, out of the abundance of the heart, the what? The mouth speaks. But it's not only that out of your heart your mouth speaks. What you speak actually shapes your heart. It shapes your mind. It, it goes both ways. And so if you're using, I'm not saying you can't use the word. You just need to always be thoughtful about it. Because it might be framing the discussion and framing your heart and mind when you don't even know it is. And when you're unaware, then you're at a disadvantage in making progress in this discussion. So I want to exhort you, brothers and sisters, to think along the lines of ethnic people group or ethnicity, maybe even take on a missiological perspective. So if you look at joshuaproject.net, they, they break up people groups by affinity blocks and then um, people clusters and then people groups and then ethnic people groups. That might be a better way forward as we think about this discussion. And we are missionaries, aren't we, as Christians? I mean, we're all on the Great Commission. We should think like a missionary anyways. So I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, to maybe go to joshuaproject.net and think along missiological lines of ethnic people groups rather than the way that the culture is talking about it. At least first, it will help shape the way you think, okay? I want to encourage you to do that. 
um, because we could define people groups a lot of different ways. Okay, let me give you one other suggestion. This one's a little bit not as strong, but when we say people of color or black or white, we're still distinguishing people by what? Physical traits, right? And I would just encourage you, and I'm not saying you should never use those terms, I'm just saying you should always be thoughtful because I think those, even those, even those words, even people of color, which is a politically correct phrase, it just, defi- it just starts to define people along the wrong division lines. And that puts us at a disadvantage, I think, in this conversation. Now, I'm not saying physical appearance doesn't matter at all, okay? I'm not saying skin color doesn't matter at all. Let me quote Scott Mell, who's a graduate from the Master Seminary. Dr. Scott Mell, pastor at Cornerstone West LA, he wrote this. In acknowledging physical, ex- physical appearance distinctions, we gain a window not necessarily into a whole person, most fundam- who, who a person most fundamentally is, but into their experience in this fallen and broken world. Race is a human construct created to make arbitrary distinctions between peoples for the sake of asserting superiority, the superiority of one over the other. And while it would be wonderful if race as a concept had never been invented, the way forward in our fallen world is not to ignore it. So I'm not saying ignore it, okay? We can't wish away such a profound cultural dynamic. Instead, we must see it for what it is in our culture and understand it as a piece of the puzzle that makes up each unique individual we have the pleasure of knowing and the responsibility of loving. I continue the quote, the color of your skin does not tell me about your ethnic heritage, your cultural values, your personality, your level of education, or even what language you speak. But because we live in, this is why it's important, because we live in a racialized society, the color of your skin does tell me about your experience in this fallen and broken world. So it does say something. It tells us about your experience in this world, and so we need to be mindful of that and not colorblind, as Scott Mel says. Okay, so how is racism born here? Or how is ethnocentrism born here? PJ, you haven't explained from Genesis 11 how ethnocentrism is born here. Here's how it's born here. Everyone look, listen up to this. So when people are self-exalting as a group and they don't want to scatter around the world, what does God do? What's his punishment? He changes their what? Languages in order to what? To scatter them, right? That's what he does. Does God eradicate sin from the human heart at this point? Yes or no? No, so sin still is there. So so watch this. If sin is still there, self-exalting is still there, exalting yourself with your group is still there, but now you have multiple groups, now what do you have between the groups? Self-exalting groups, right? You have ethnocentrism right here. You have, so the the self-centeredness, the individual self-centeredness, and the group self-centeredness doesn't go away at Babel. But now you have multiple groups that are going to be at strife with each other because of their self-centeredness, because of their self-exalting. And so that's why I say racism, or what people call racism, ethnocentrism is born right here. Because groups are born right here, yet self-exalting remains. And because of that, like I said, there is self-centeredness, okay? So so that's group-centeredness. So so what is ethnocentrism? Let me give you a, a, a definition here at least in how it applies in our culture. Let me be a little bit more cultural here. It's a, it's a mindset, sometimes a subtle mindset. It's a mindset that justifies, here's ethnocentrism, a mindset that justifies exalting your group by, so it exalts your group by increasing opportunities for your group's advancement, however you define your ethnic people group. You increase opportunities for your group's advancement, justifying your group's exaltation, while at the same time cultivating indifference, apathy, unawareness, or even sinful competition with other people groups, diminishing their opportunities. 
Okay, there is a way to seek your own, like I can love my kids without hurting other kids, right? There's a way of doing that. But, but there is also a way of, doing, of, of, of providing for my kids in a way that hurts other kids. I could do that as well. So ethnocentrism is when you're, you're advancing your ethnic people group to the diminishing, the apathy, the indifference of another ethnic people group in sinful competition even. That, so, so, so just take that and, and chew on that and then see how the implications of that flow out in this discussion of race. So what, by the way, I'm saying here with ethnocentrism, I'm not defining it as personal, irrational prejudice towards other people, okay? I'm not saying that doesn't exist. That's a problem as well. But I'm just avoiding the whole racism as a term because it's, some people say it as personal prejudice. Others say it as systemic. I think it has areas of both, and the word is just confusing. So I'm using ethnocentrism to talk about groups exalting one over the other. All right. Let's move on. Let's go to point number seven. We need to hurry up here. So in um, point seven now, oh, I'm sorry, one more, one more thing on, on, on point six this is important. Groups, now, what does, if, if group-centeredness or ethnocentrism is born here, I want you to see how strategic this is by Satan. This is a tool of Satan. If ethnocentrism is born right here, what was the goal of God in Genesis 1.28? Be fruitful, multiply, and what? Fill the earth. What was their problem? They wanted to stay together and, and create a name for who? Themselves, okay? So, so, so when you do group exaltation, here's what happens. Group exaltation is the opposite of trying to fill the earth with the glory of God. Exalting your group is the opposite of filling the earth with the glory of God. So, so ethnocentrism is, this is why it's important for the church and discipleship. Ethnocentrism is a sneaky, sinful, and satanic attempt to isolate people groups and block the mission of God. It's opposite of the Great Commission. And if the Great Commission is central to the mission of the church, then ethnocentrism is, is one of its public enemy number one. Because it, it goes against spreading and, and touching and reaching and loving going around the globe for the glory of God. So this is not a secondary issue. This is a Great Commission issue. All right. Number seven now. So let, let's move on a little bit quicker here with the story. So now we're on Abraham, okay? So that's creation, fall, and Abraham. Uh, statement number seven, God called Abraham out in order to bless all ethnic people groups. So Genesis 12, three says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth, all the families of the earth, all the ethnic people groups of the earth will be blessed, Abraham, through you. So the world is falling apart because of sin. The world is cursed and going to hell because of their sin and rebellion against God. And then God promises blessing a reversal of the curse through Abraham's offspring, okay? World's falling apart because of Adam and Eve, and now blessing and hope for all ethnic people groups is promised through Abraham. That's statement number seven. Statement number eight, Israel, now we're in Israel. Israel is a royal priesthood for the nations. Israel was to be, or is to be, Israel is to be a royal priesthood for the nations. Exodus 19, five and six, God redeems them out of slavery in Egypt. And what does he say? Look at Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, God says, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be a kingdom of priests and my holy nation. So they're going to be a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? That means that they are to mediate the blessing of Abraham to a cursed world. Now, they don't do it the way the church does by scattering. 
They do it by being a holy people in their land and the nations being attracted to it. But their, but their call was to be a royal priesthood for the nations. Israel was to be a blessing to the nations by their keeping of the law covenant through Moses. That's statement number eight. Statement number nine. Now let's go to the, the, the high point of Israel's history, Solomon. Number nine is this. Solomon prays that the temple would unite the nations. Solomon prays that the temple would unite the nations. 1 Kings 8, 41 to 43. So, so Solomon is praying that when the sinner looks at this temple from our people, if they look at the temple and they pray, forgive them, hear them and forgive them. And then Solomon prays this in, in 1 Kings 8, 41. Even the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name, strong hand and outstretched arm, and will come and pray toward this temple. May you hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all the foreigner asks. Then all peoples of the earth will know your name to fear you as your people Israel do and to know that this temple I have built bears your name. That's the blessing of the nations, the blessing to the nations through the temple. So Solomon prays that the, that the nations would be blessed, that the temple would unite the nations in blessing. Well, eventually Israel is exiled, right? They're kicked out of the land, 722 B.C., 605, and then 597, 586 B.C. for the southern kingdom of Judah. And while they're in exile, here's statement number 10. Statement number 10. God promises Israel during exile that he's going to gather and save Israel and all the nations. God promises in exile that he's going to save Israel and all the nations. Let me just read to you Isaiah 66, 18, and 21 about the nations. There's a lot of promises about Israel being redeemed. Ezekiel 36, that was my devotions this morning. It was, it was right there in Ezekiel 36. So, but here, Isaiah 66, 18 and 21, it says this, knowing their works and their thoughts, God says, I have come to gather all nations and languages. They will come and see my glory. I will also take some of them as priests and Levites, some of the nations. God will take some of the, the, the Gentiles and make them priests and Levites. It says in Isaiah 66, 21. So what does God promise? Even in exile, he's going to gather all the ethnic people groups and make them his people, even Levites and priests. Statement number 11. Now, New Testament, okay? So that's creation, fall, Abraham, Israel, exile, promise to the nations. Now, Jesus. We're going Jesus, church, and consummation. Just a verse on each. Jesus. Statement number 11. God the Son becomes human and dies for the sins of all nations. Okay? Jesus becomes human and dies for the sins of all nations. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. Listen to this. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered. You, were, you died. You were slaughtered. And you purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign on the earth. Jesus purchased people. He died for every ethnic people group. And they will all be redeemed. I mean, people from every ethnic people group will be redeemed. If you're not a Christian, let me just say here very briefly, it would be um, wrong for me to assume that everyone here is a Christian. Even at the Master's University, sometimes people bring friends in. You know, So maybe you're a guest here or maybe you're a student here. You're not sure if you're a Christian. Let me just give you some good news just very briefly. The Lamb, Jesus Christ, was slaughtered for your sins. This is the greatest news in the world. If you repent from your sins... And trust in the lamb who was slaughtered for you. He will make you one of his people. That's a sweet truth. All right, number 12. Number 12. 
Jesus commissions his people to gospelize, that's my word, evangelize, and disciple all nations, right? Jesus commissions his people to gospelize and disciple all nations. Matthew 28, 19, 20, go therefore and make disciples of all, all what? Nations, right? And then you baptize them, and when you're immersing them in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're giving them a new identity as a new people. So he commissions us to go and gospelize and disciple all ethnic people groups. Nations there doesn't mean the 196 nation states of our political situation right now. It's, it's speaking of ethnic people groups. And then number 13. So uh, number 12, Jesus is sending us, we need to go. We need to go to our neighbors and other ethnic people groups and make disciples. Number 13, Jesus creates the church made up of all Jews, uh, made up of Jews and all ethnic people groups. This is Ephesians 2, 14 to 16, where he takes the two and makes them one body in Christ. Ephesians 2, 14, he is our peace. Jesus is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressing regulations so that he might create himself in himself one new man for the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. So Jesus Christ made us one body, the church of all ethnic people groups, removing hosti hostility. Through the cross, we get peace with God. He becomes our father, which means we become what to each other? Brothers and sisters, we become family. We are now the family of God. Not many families of God. We are the one family of God, the one body of Christ. Number 14. So Jesus creates, um, number 13 was Jesus creates a church made up of all ethnic people groups. Number 14, Jesus creates this body as a, new, as a new and holy nation, or you could say a new and holy ethnic people group. And I'm just using 1 Peter 2.9. Um, 1 Peter 2.9 says, you are talking to the church now, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy, you know the next word, a holy what? A holy nation. A holy nation. You are a holy nation as the church. We never think of our church in national, nationalistic terms. But the church is a holy nation. I don't mind you being patriotic for your country, wherever, whatever country you're from. It's not necessarily sinful. It can actually be a very good thing. But your patriotism for your nation state today must never come close to your patriotism for your holy nation. The holy nation. We are citizens of heaven, it says in Philippians 3.20. And even, okay, so... Um, that's, that's number 14. Number 15 now. Let's go to number 15. Lastly, end of the story. Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this I looked, and I saw a vast multitude which no one could number, from every tribe and nation and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God, so here's number 15. People will be redeemed from every ethnic people group to worship the Father and the Lamb forever and ever in the new earth. That's the end of the story. People will, from every ethnic people group, be saved. So let me make a few um, systematic theology statements, systematic theological statements, and then three applications. Okay, so here's a few um, just statements regarding this discussion now, okay, as we bring this to a close. Just, okay, so, so you, you might want to write these down. Um, they're short statements. Statement number one, individual sin exists. We all agree on that, right? Individual sin exists. That's statement number one. Statement number two, corporate sin exists. Do you guys know that corporate sin exists? Um, corporate sin exists too. 
Groups can sin together as groups. We talked about ethnocentrism, right? I mean, all the groups, all, I mean, all the humans as one group sinned in making a name for themselves, and now ethnic people groups sin in corporate ways. So corporate sin exists. Even Daniel prayed in Daniel 9, uh, forgive us of our sins, speaking of him and the whole nation of Israel. Okay, so corporate sin exists. Individual sin, corporate sin. Here's a third one. Unintentional sin exists. You guys believe that? that uh, have you ever sinned unintentionally or well, you didn't know you sinned and someone brought it up to you later, pointed it out to you? Leviticus 4.2 says when someone sins unintentionally against Yahweh, so there is unintentional sin where you're unaware of your sin. That's statement number three. But listen, to, put that together now. If there's individual sin and corporate sin, and if there's unintentional sin, is it possible, this statement number four, is it possible that there's unintentional corporate sin? Is that possible? That as a group you can sin and not even be aware of it? Brothers and sisters, I want to suggest and, and, and encourage you to, to believe that there is such a thing as unintentional corporate sin. And then number five here, as far as um, a systematic theological statement, the church is the one place where you're going to see ethnic harmony. It's the only place where you can truly see deep and real ethnic harmony among ethnic people groups. Why? What's the, what's the problem? Why, why are ethnic people groups separated in a word, in a short three-letter word? What's the problem? Sin, right? So who has a, what's the solution to sin? The grace of God in the gospel, right? And who has that gospel? Who has that grace? The church. That's why the world could never fully solve this problem. They won't be able to. But the church can and must practically, progressively in sanctification or transformation, work it out regularly in their church communities. We are the one place that has the answer to sin, to selfishness, group selfishness and individual selfishness, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the church is where we must press grace into the nooks and crannies of this issue to solve it um, progressively and continually. Uh, and we'll, we'll never fully solve it because we'll never fully solve sin until Christ comes again. The world can't do it now. But I do want to say this in terms of discussion and all the different vocations you guys are going out from this place to live in your lives. I want to say this, I, and Matt, I agree 100% with Matt Jones, with what Matt said on Monday. I watched it live, okay, so I was, I was there with you guys, okay, uh, but um, laws don't change people. They don't change hearts, I mean, but laws do influence worldview. We do want Roe v. Wade turned, overturned, in terms of a law, and that would be good for society. So I just want to encourage you, yes, laws don't transform hearts, only the church is where it's going to be fully, full ethnic harmony, and yet we still work to bless and love our neighbors. Just because it doesn't transform their hearts doesn't mean it doesn't, doesn't do them any good. Okay? We need to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Okay, so three closing applications here. And it's just three words. See, test, see, test, and love. Okay? This, what, is, how does, what do we do practically here? If we're the church, we're going to exercise ethnic harmony. See, test, and love. What do I mean by these? Number one is see. See the world through the eyes of other ethnic people groups that are not like you. S embrace their perspective. Try on their glasses. So I was at my school. It was already mentioned here, so I was going to be anonymous here with the school. But um, I was at my school, where I'm, or my current school, and I was talking to some African-American brothers. This is right when all the shootings and killings were going on, and I sat down with them during lunch. I said, brothers, talk to me. What are you guys feeling? What are you thinking? And so um, he, was, he was just saying, you know, Look at, our, look at this campus. We're in Heritage Hall. Think about the heritage of the Southern Baptists. I'm a Southern Baptist. Think about the heritage. Look around. Look at these beautiful buildings here. Who built these? 
Who built these? And as, as I, I just, what, I, I'm Filipino-American. I don't have, you know, I wasn't African-American. I'm not African-American, don't have that in my background. So I don't put those glasses on naturally. And I just started walking around campus with those glasses on. I started looking at all the different displays and exhibits of their history. And like, you're, you're reading about these great heroes. And that's great. Uh, I, 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 even in the room, let me say one more thing about seeing from their eyes. With the room I was sitting in, there were like all these pictures of great men. And the brother said to me, slave owner, slave owner, slave owner. Slave, and he just started going around the room on the great portraits. And he said, right here, that's the, last that's the last person who owned slaves. Then it broke right here. So he knows exactly the history. So I'm here in a room with all, you know, just enjoying school, not seeing from his eyes. And, and I'm not, it's not wrong for me not to see from his eyes, but I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to see from their eyes. So when I would start looking around at these different exhibits, I started thinking, okay, if I was African American, what would I want on this, dis on this exhibit that's different? Maybe I would want, and I'm not sure, um, my African-American brothers here, maybe you might want to tell me. What I might want is just one statement. So yes, this, this brother did a lot of great things, but maybe just one statement that there was a blind spot in his life, the sin of racism and slavery, that he, was, that he did not see it and repent of it in his life. Maybe just one line of the 50 lines on the exhibit. Not to degrade, but just to be real, right? Just, just to see from their perspective. I want to see, so, so see from their perspective, that's, that's number one. Number two, test. Just because you see from another's perspective doesn't mean that perspective is right, right? We're from the Master's University here. We want to take every thought captive to Christ. So we want to test thoughts, but don't switch them. Don't switch them. Don't test first and then see, because then you don't listen well, right? Listen first. See first, try the glasses on first, and then take your Bible out, pray, and test. But don't switch the order, brothers and sisters. You will be self-righteous. You will not hear well. You will be quick to speak and slow to listen, opposite of James 1. So test, but then after you see their perspective, that doesn't mean you have to agree with everything someone says. You test it. Think biblically about it. Think it out loud and work on it and test each other, okay? So test. Thirdly, third and last, Love. Love. What do I mean by love? First John 3 talks about, sorry, I took up the, the I, I got up here four minutes late, and I'm here five minutes late, so I'm just finish here with love. Love. Um, I was with a pastor, um, Bobby Scott. You guys know Pastor Bobby Scott from um, Community of Faith Bible Church. We were sitting down talking about this issue in his, in his study, in his office, and he said, PJ, what's your goal? As you're thinking about this, what is your goal? Like, how are you going to change? We're just going over all the problems in the black community, African-American community, and he's saying, what's, how are you going to fix this? Or what's your goal with all this? I said, brother, I don't think that far. I'm not that strategic. I'm not saying people shouldn't. I just don't. Here's my goal. My goal is to teach every member of my church, and now here, my prayer, is that everyone we disciple or have the discipleship opportunities, that we would teach them to see from another person's perspective and test so that when they see that, guess what they're going to do? They're going to love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, when you see from their perspective, now you can love them better, right? Now you can love them better. So I was telling Pastor Bob, I was like, brother, I'm not saying I have this great plan of how to solve everything. But if you unleash the church, the church of the living God, with 1 John 3 talks about the heavenly love that's placed in every believer's heart because God is love. If you take the heavenly love of God in the heart of every believer in America and they see from the perspective of others and test, and then they love from that sight... What will, what will happen in our churches? What will happen in our communities? What will the church do to bless their neighbors in, in the United States of America? I don't know. I don't have the strategic plans. I just know that if you take the heavenly love of God 
with a heart of understanding ethnic people groups that are different than you, and you unleash that love, great things will happen. Let me just close with an illustration of how this all fits together. Um, not from race or ethnicity. I have a friend who has a sister who's handicapped. I want to show you how C, test, and love fits together. He, she, he, has a fr- he has a sister who's handicapped, and he would talk to me about how she's, always, she's stuck in a wheelchair, and she would sometimes pee on herself, urinate, because people would be in the public bathrooms, in the handicapped bathrooms, who weren't handicapped. So she'd be crying, waiting, and saying, brother, what do I do? I, can't, I need to go to the bathroom. I can't because they're in the handicapped bathroom. And I was just like, oh, like, that broke my heart. So guess what I started doing now when I see a handicapped bathroom? Do you think I ever go in a handicapped bathroom now? Nope. I was at the airport just in January with all my luggage in a little stall. And I was not going to go in the handicapped bathroom. Because there might be a handicapped neighbor of mine that I want to love as I love myself. I want to see from his perspective that if he needs to go to the bathroom and there's only one handicapped bathroom and I'm not handicapped, why do I need to go? Yes, there's more space for my luggage. But if I'm going to see and then test and then love them as I love myself, it's going to change the way I act. It's going to change my decisions and my brothers and sisters, my prayers that it changes yours. Let's pray. Father, grant us eyes to see from the perspective of others. More importantly, grant us biblical eyes, a biblical theological frame to see and test. And then, Father, we pray that through this group of the Master's University students, that you would unleash your heavenly love on each other here, on the community, in the churches, and on our nation for the glory of your name among all ethnic people groups spreading across the globe. In Jesus' name we pray.